Well, in his recent biography of the fourth president, our speaker today focused on James Madison's role in the battle for religious freedom in Virginia, his contributions to the adoption of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, his place in the evolution of the party system, his views on slavery, and his relationship with his wife, Dolly. Today, he will shed light on James Madison's performance as a wartime commander-in-chief and reveal, thank you very much, and reveal, <laughs> interrupt me all you want, let's just not interrupt our speaker, and reveal how the unlikely wartime leader survived repeated setbacks in the War of 1812 with his popularity intact. And just ask recent presidents, it's no mean feat to do that. Dr. Jeff Broadwater is a professor of history in the Department of History and Social Sciences at Barton College in North Carolina. He's the author of several books, including George Mason, Forgotten Founder, and most recently, James Madison, a son of Virginia and a founder of the nation. His book on George Mason won the Virginia Historical Society's Richard Slatton Award for Excellence in Virginia Biography and was rated by the Washington Post as one of the best biographies of 2006. Dr. Broadwater has also written numerous articles, essays, and reviews in the field of American history and has delivered papers and public lectures at various scholarly conferences and historic sites and on C-SPAN. Before coming to Barton, he practiced corporate and public utility law and argued and won one case, Arkansas Electric Cooperative Corporation versus the Arkansas Public Service Commission in 1983 before the United States Supreme Court. So please join me today in welcoming Jeff Broadwater, who will speak to us about why Washington burned and how the president survived James Madison and the War of 1812. Thank you uh, for the introduction, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to participate in the Banner uh, Lecture Series. Uh, I think what historians want, uh, above all else, is an audience and a forum to write and, and talk about history. It's audiences like this that make what we do worthwhile. So I want to thank the Society for inviting me, and I want to thank all of you for, for being here today. Uh, when you write a book about a president, you have to ask yourself at some step in the process uh, whether the book's really necessary. Uh, every president's been the subject of dozens, maybe hundreds of books. Uh, right now, Times Books is publishing a series of books on each of the presidents. Um, uh, the, um, the Times series focuses on the, on the, the, the president's presidential years. Um, about 10 years ago, uh, Gary Wills uh, wrote the Time volume on Madison, and Wills, of course, is, uh, is a well-known writer. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes and lots of other awards, and he's published a lot of books. Now, the Time series is not um, illustrated, but at the start of each one of the volumes, there's a picture of that particular president, and at the, uh, you'll have to take my word for this, at the beginning of the Wills' volume on James Madison, there's a picture of, I've got it tagged here, James Monroe. So. <laughs> Yeah, so <clears throat> now I'm, I'm sure Gary Wills knows what James Madison looked like. It was probably an intern that selected that picture. Uh, and, and I've got to uh, add that uh, Times uh, corrected the mistake in, in later editions. But it occurred to me when I saw that picture that if a, a major publisher 
can publish a book about Madison and they don't know what Madison looked like, then maybe Madison's not as well known as he ought to be. Uh, and I should go ahead and write my book and do my part to get the word out about James Madison. Uh, now, normally at this point, I spend a few minutes uh, talking about who James Madison was and, and why he's important, about how he's remembered as the father of the Constitution and, and all that. Uh, but I think I can skip the preliminaries for this crowd. I've found over the years that audiences in Virginia are pretty knowledgeable about their history, so I'm, I'm, not, going to, I'm not going to introduce James Madison to you. Uh, let me, though, tell you briefly what I was trying to do in the book, and then I'll get to the main topic for today, the, the, Washington, uh, the, the, uh, the British raid on Washington in the, um, in the summer of 1814. Uh, when I started work on Madison, uh, there wasn't uh, an up-to-date uh, biography of Madison uh, in print, or at least not one of, a, of, of reasonable length. Uh, Irving Brandt had written a, a six-volume biography of Madison, uh, several years ago, uh, but the, um, the, the, the Brandt book had its limitations, despite its, uh, in addition to its imposing bulk. Uh, the last uh, volume in, in, the, in the series came out in 1961, so it's fairly dated. Uh, there was a somewhat more recent book by Ralph uh, Ketchum, uh, a very good book, uh, more accessible, I think, than, than the Brandt book, but still Ralph Ketchum's book was over 600 pages long, and and more than 40 years old. Uh, so I thought there was, there was a, a, a need for, a, for an up-to-date uh, Madison biography of, of a reasonable length uh, and to try to, to keep the, the, the book to a sort of a manageable length and to try to make it as interesting as possible to, uh, to, to readers. I focused on, as Paul mentioned, these sort of seven episodes or periods in, in Madison's life that I thought would be of the most interest to readers. His, his ba the battle for religious freedom in Virginia, his role in the adoption of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, his contribution to the development of the two-party system, uh, his relationship with Dolly Madison, and then his, his, his tenure as a commander-in-chief during the War of 1812, and then finally his retirement years, where he really had to grapple with the, the problem of, of slavery uh, in America. Um, today, I thought I would focus on, on Madison's presidency. And, of course, his tenure in the Oval Office didn't really help his historical reputation. Uh, one of the two or three things people remember or think they remember about Madison is he wasn't a very successful uh, president. Um, or at least he's usually not considered a very successful president. Um, in 2009, C-SPAN did a poll of 65 historians, and they rated uh, Madison number 20 out of 42 presidents, which put him in the average category uh, just behind John Quincy Adams and just ahead of Grover Cleveland. Now, more recently, in 2011, uh, Siena College, <coughs> excuse me, in New York, uh, published a survey of 238 presidential scholars, I guess historians and political scientists, uh, and they ranked Madison number six on the list uh, and number two in one category, intelligence. Uh, and I might mention that Madison's best friend, Thomas Jefferson, finished number one on the presidential IQ scale. Uh, but the Siena poll may be something of an aberration. Sixth place seems a little bit high for Madison, um, but I do think that it may be time to, to consider or to reconsider history's verdict on Madison's presidency. Uh, maybe we've been a little bit too tough on him. 
Of course, it was the War of 1812 that dominated Madison's administration, and that's a timely topic for us since we're in the middle of the war's bicentennial. Um, America's lackluster performance in, in one of our strangest wars, I think, more than anything else, explains why Madison is typically rated in the, the middle of the pact as far as presidents go. <coughs> Excuse me. We can, we can begin the story today, I think, on June 1st, 1812, when Madison sends his war message to Congress. He begins with an attack on impressment on the British practice of seizing British subjects, or at least alleged British subjects, from American ships and impressing them into service in the Royal Navy. Its long war against Napoleon had left the, the Royal Navy desperate for sailors. And then Madison concluded a recitation of American grievances by suggesting, but not quite saying, that the British were responsible for what he called the warfare just renewed by the savages on one of our extensive frontiers. And in between, <coughs> excuse me, Madison spent most of his time complaining about British restrictions on American trade with France uh, and its allies. A combination of American diplomacy and uh, economic sanctions um, had brought no relief. And on June 4th, a divided House of Representatives passed a declaration of war. On June 13th, an equally divided Senate concurred. And then on June 18th, Madison signed the official declaration. He didn't know, no one in America knew, that two days earlier, the British government had decided to suspend its restrictions on American commerce. Suffering through a recession, the British believed that the restoration of normal trade with the United States might help revive the British economy. Madison said later he wouldn't have gone to war if he'd known about the change in British policy, but the issue of impressment uh, and a general animosity toward Great Britain uh, and also just the slow pace of early 19th century diplomacy kept the war going for two and a half years. And so Madison uh, led an unprepared nation into an unnecessary war, and modern historians have not been kind to him. If the United States had won a decisive victory, Madison probably would have been forgiven, but that unfortunately was not to be. The war went badly from the start, and a series of American misadventures culminated in the burning of the White House and the Capitol by British troops in August 1814. Now that particular disaster began with a strained relationship between Madison um, and uh, uh, his Secretary of War, a cantankerous New Yorker named James uh, John Armstrong. Uh, Armstrong had presidential uh, ambitions, as did James Monroe, who was then Secretary of, the St Secretary of State. Uh, Madison, I think, obviously hoped to be succeed uh, succeeded by a fellow Virginian, and that was a political fact of life that Armstrong resented, and I think his political frustrations probably contributed to the insubordination that he's going to display later. The um, British had raided coastal towns in the Chesapeake uh, during the summer of 1813, and in May 1814, as the weather improved, uh, Madison, uh, anticipating new attacks uh, during the summer of 1813, uh, told Armstrong to strengthen Washington's defenses but Washington, uh, Armstrong ignored the, the order. At a cabinet meeting on July 1st, uh, 1814, Madison predicted the British would attack Washington, but Armstrong disagreed. Uh, 
Armstrong thought that Baltimore or Annapolis presented more likely targets, and Armstrong's opinion made some sense. Baltimore and, and Annapolis were larger cities and of much greater uh, commercial significance. Now, there were some cynics that suspected that Armstrong might have ulterior motives. If the British were to destroy Washington, it would create an opportunity for Northerners like Armstrong to move the capital north. Um, and I think there was still some, um, uh, some desire to, uh, <coughs> to, to abandon uh, Washington, whether the British destroyed it or not. Well, under pressure from the, the president, the War Department created something called the, the 10th Military District uh, to defend the capital. Uh, Armstrong wanted to give the command of the 10th District to Moses Porter, who was a distinguished veteran of the American Revolution and an old Indian fighter. But Madison overruled him and made a, a political appointment, a Baltimore lawyer named William Winder. Um, Winder's military experience consisted mainly of being captured at the Battle of Stony Brook near, uh, near or Stony Creek, Stony Creek near Niagara, New York, in, in June of 1813, and he'd since been uh, exchanged uh, for, for a British officer. Um, but Masson had reasons for preferring Winder, maybe not good reasons, but reasons. The defense of Washington would defend, uh, depend heavily on the support of Maryland militia. The regular army only had a few hundred troops in the Washington area. And the governor of Maryland uh, was General Winder's uncle. And uh, Madison hoped the family connection would ensure Maryland's uh, uh, cooperation. Well, Winder spends most of his time, this in July, early August, uh, 1814, inspecting terrain uh, around Washington without really accomplishing very much. Now, there was a cartographer in the, um, in the War Department who'd already predicted that Washington's defenses, if the British chose to attack, would probably hinge on the little Maryland town of Bladensburg on the eastern branch of the Potomac River. There was a bridge there, and the river was also uh, shallow enough to, to ford. Um, one road at Bladensburg led to Georgetown, and then there was another road that led to, to Washington, D.C. Winter, though, had no real strategy to defend the, the city, and Armstrong, for his part, didn't want to pay for a general mobilization of the militia until he absolutely had to, and not until about July 12th uh, did Winder receive authority to call up about 6,000 Maryland militiamen. Well, to complicate matters, in mid-August, uh, Madison and Armstrong had an ugly confrontation over Armstrong's practice of reorganizing regiments and issuing military regulations and promoting officers without consulting Madison. And after being rebuked, I think Armstrong apparently decided that he wouldn't do anything in the future without specific orders from Madison. And after this session in mid-August, he, he, he didn't give a, a winder any more support other than assigning an adjunct to his staff uh, and a chaplain, and I, uh, maybe Armstrong thought before this was out, Winder would need, would need a chaplain. <laughs> on uh, August 15th, this is where the story really starts to pick up, on August 15th, British troops, or British uh, transports, carrying about 4,500 troops, commanded by General Robert Ross, passed through the Virginia Capes to meet British warships, led by Admiral George Cockburn. On August 18th, Madison received news of the approach of the British fleet. 
Madison ordered roadblocks to be placed on local roads, but again, his order was apparently ignored. Uh, militia units, in the meantime, were marching and drilling around Washington, uh, D.C., but with no real leadership, really didn't accomplish anything. The next day, August 19th, Ross and Cockburn began disembarking troops at Benedict, Maryland, and James Monroe, who was the, the, the Secretary of State, leaves Washington with about two dozen cavalrymen to begin to monitor the British troop movements. Now, that the Secretary of State would have to undertake a scouting assignment that could probably be led by a second lieutenant, I think suggests just how disorganized Washington was in August of, August of 1814. It was a really odd undertaking. But Matt, uh, Monroe, Monroe found the British landing site, and he watched the Redcoats as they began to move north on August 21st. Uh, and on that day, Madison ordered a general mobilization of the, the militia, or at least the next day, he ordered a general mobilization of the militia, and he told Ollie Madison to begin to make preparations to evacuate the White House. Uh, by the 22nd, the British were at Marl Marlboro, which was about 30 miles from Baltimore. The Americans remained uncertain of the British intentions, and in fact, Ross and Cockburn, I don't think, made the final decision to attack the capital until August 23rd. Uh, now, Washington could be approached uh, most directly from the south across two bridges over the Anacosta River, but the, bridge, the British assumed that those bridges would be heavily um, defended or destroyed, and eventually the Americans did blow them up. Um, now, Winder had about half of his troops nearby uh, at the Washington Naval Yard. It's about a mile from the capital. And it was an odd and unfortunate disposition. It was the broadest part of the, of, of the river, and it was on a stretch that was already defended by, by naval guns. Uh, the troops were safe there, but not in a position really to, 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 to make much of a contribution to Washington's defenses. And the British prudently uh, decided to, to bypass that position. They elected to take a longer route. Um, they, uh, Ross and Cockburn decided to cross the Potomac at Bladensburg, the way where the War Department clerk had tried to tell the uh, uh, folks that they would go. And then they would approach uh, Washington from the, from the Northeast. Well, on the morning of August 24th, uh, at a meeting at the Naval Yard, Madison gets the news the British were headed toward Bladensburg. An American militia had already begun to assemble there, uh, and Winder rushed uh, uh, to, to reinforce them with a, a motley crew of, of cavalry, uh, sailors, Marines, Army regulars, and more militia from Maryland and the District of Columbia. And despite the, the improvised nature of the American defenses, Madison had reasons to be optimistic. Uh, the Americans would outnumber the British, and they had an advantage. In, uh, in cavalry and artillery, and they would be defending the, the high ground as the, as the, the British crossed the, crossed the river. Uh, also, early on the 24th, the local American commander at Bladensburg, a man named Tobias Stansbury, had arranged his men in, in three lines, with the first line in the cover uh, of, provided by an orchard, which was near the, the river. Now, Monroe reached uh, Bladensburg uh, about midday on the, the 24th, before any other senior official, and he redeployed the, the, the American troops, and he inadvertently separated them so one line couldn't support the other, and he also took the first line out of the, the cover of the, of the orchard. Uh, it was probably a mistake. 
Uh, Madison, Armstrong, and Winder reached the scene just a short time before the battle began. And none of them provided any sort of strategic direction except I came across one quote from Winder. He supposedly told one artillery sergeant that when you retreat, take note, you must retreat by the Georgetown Road. So he was, he was, he was already making plans, plans for the retreat before the fighting started. Well, when the British crossed the, uh, crossed the bridge, they took heavy uh, casualties from the first line of American defenders but uh, they began to, to, to fall back, and as the first line of American soldiers began to fall back, officers in the second line ordered the men to retreat. The Americans might have reformed around a, a group of naval gunners that were commanded by Josiah Barney, a, a naval officer who had just arrived from Washington uh, as the battle was beginning. And, and Barney's uh, soldiers and Marines uh, anchored the, the last line of defense. And they fought until they were overrun, and, and Barney was, was wounded and, and taken prisoner by the British. He said later, I think this is a nice understatement, he said later he was cruelly disappointed that the other Americans had not rallied around his, his Marines and his sailors. By about 2 o'clock that afternoon, Madison, who had ridden to the, uh, to the rear of the American lines, received news that the battle was lost, and uh, Ross and Cockburn entered Washington uh, D.C. later that day. But I don't think the American defeat had been inevitable. With proper leadership, American soldiers won other battles in the War of 1812. Uh, Andrew Jackson's victory at the, war, at the, at the Battle of New Orleans is, is, is the obvious example. But there's another American success with another American general that I think makes a more interesting comparison. Samuel Smith was a 62-year-old veteran of the American Revolution, a United States Senator, and a Major General in the Maryland Militia. Smith had taken charge of Baltimore's defenses, and in the summer of 1814, when William Winder from the regular army attempted to assume command in Baltimore, Smith rebuffed him. Baltimore's harbor, or inner harbor, was guarded, of course, by Fort McHenry, but Smith positioned gun batteries outside the fort and built smaller forts and redoubts around the city. He put gunboats and armed barges in the harbor and sunk ships in the, in, the, in the entrance to serve as a barrier to British vessels. Baltimore had been working on its defenses for over a year when uh, in August of 1814, city leaders formed a committee of vigilance and safety that drafted every white male in the city between the ages of 16 and 50 um, and uh, Smith put, them, put his conscript army to work digging trenches and earthworks. And when the British approached Baltimore in September after they'd burned Washington, Smith had at least 9,000 men in, uh, in his command and, and maybe more. We remember the Battle of Baltimore for the failed attack on Fort McHenry. But there was another operation, I think, of almost equal significance. As the Royal Navy approached from the sea, a British army advanced on Baltimore by land. Smith sent 3,200 men to meet them at North Point, Maryland um, on September 12th. As they'd done at Bladensburg, the American militia uh, retreated when British regulars charged them, but they fell back in good order. And in the skirmishing, uh, Ross, the British uh, commander, was killed. I think the death of a popular general demoralized the British and delayed the British uh, the British uh, advance. Ross's second in command, 
uh, Colonel Arthur Brooke, decided against attacking Baltimore without close support from the British fleet. But, um, of course, the British, the British warships couldn't get close enough to shore because of Fort McHenry. Um, when the, the British saw, as the song goes, by the dawn's early light on September 14th, that a naval bombardment uh, of Fort McHenry had failed to reduce the fort, they abandoned the entire operation, which raises a question. Why was the city of Baltimore able to defend itself when the nation's capital couldn't? Well, American forces could win local victories under unusually intrepid commanders like Andrew Jackson or Samuel Smith, but uh, in the ordinary course of business, the national government lacked the resources to fight effectively when lesser generals were in charge. And why was that? Why was the central government so feeble? Excuse me. Well, <clears throat> in the early 1800s, 90% of Americans lived on farms or in small towns. They had limited contact with the outside world. Local authorities commanded more respect than did the federal government. The only federal presence in most communities was a post office. Once the war began, state militia officers often disputed the authority of regular army officers the way Samuel Smith did in, in Baltimore. Governors frequently refused to make state troops available for federal service. Uh, during fighting along the Canadian border, militia units repeatedly refused to, to enter into Canada on the grounds they couldn't be deployed outside the United States. The um, political ideology that dominated American politics during and after the Revolution made it difficult for the federal government to prepare for war. Republicans feared standing armies, or what we would call professional armies, as a threat to Republican government. Military preparations required higher taxes, but many Americans saw direct taxes as a threat to their personal freedom. Uh, as we know, Americans had revolted against uh, taxation without representation, but they didn't like taxation with representation either. That, didn't, that really didn't, that didn't make the taxes any easier to bear, to, to tolerate. So, um, and then the, you might say, apathy toward the responsibilities of, citizen, of national citizenship manifested itself in other ways. In 1810, an economy-minded Congress actually voted to reduce the size of the Army and Navy. Now, two, two years later, with war imminent, Congress um, um, uh, reverses course and votes to raise an army of 75,000 men. But despite having well over a million white men of military age available, the nation never met that congressional target. Few men wanted to enlist. Only about 5% of the eligible uh, men served in the regular army during the War of 1812. The population of the United States dwarfed the population of Canada, about 7.5 million people to about 300,000, and yet the American government could never raise enough men for a successful invasion of Canada, nor could it prepare them to fight. The Army in 1812 lacked a trained professional officer corps, and, and commissions were, were extremely political. Congress had established the, uh, the Military Academy at West Point in 1802, but by 1812, West Point had graduated only 89 students. 
Uh, instruction at West Point in the early 1800s was haphazard at best. When the war began, no one was actually enrolled in the military academy. Um, ordinary soldiers received even less preparation for combat. The Army had no standardized training manual until almost the end of the war. Uh, and once the war started, the Army would often send uh, small units uh, into, uh, in, into uh, or to integrate small units with larger units uh, and, then, uh, and then rush them into combat, which meant many um, uh, men lacked experience maneuvering uh, either within or with uh, uh, large regiments. Uh, and an adequate administrative system contributed to the Army's inefficiency. When Thomas Jefferson became president, he reduced the size of the entire, the entire executive branch from 130 employees to 128. When Jefferson took office, when Jefferson took office in 1801, the War Department had 18 civilian employees. Uh, that bloated bureaucracy appalled Jefferson, and he eliminated one position, an accounting clerk, which meant that when Madison became president, he inherited a War Department with 17 civilian employees. And when the War of 1812 began, among other bad things, the Army supply system collapsed. There was an Army Quartermaster General who duplicated the work of a civilian commissary general, but no one could keep track of supplies on hand. Um, on the brink of war, Madison had asked Congress to create two assistant secretaries of war, but the lawmakers refused. And the government's inability to feed and clothe and pay soldiers discouraged enlistments. I think it's one reason the Army couldn't reach its, its recruitment targets. And meanwhile, and predictably, the Army struggled to keep the troops it did have under control. About 10% of the men in the regular Army deserted during the War of 1812. Others found legal ways out. Um, state courts would often issue writs of habeas corpus to release disgruntled soldiers from military service. So this was something that went on even to, into the Civil War. And one of the most common grounds for soldiers to win their release was to demonstrate that they had been minors when they had, when they had enlisted. Uh, worse yet, the Army lacked an intelligent service. It had no capacity for, for strategic planning, no ability to coordinate uh, uh, separate armies in the field. Uh, early in the conflict, there was no place to put prisoners of war. Um, there was no national prison system, so the Army had to use state penitentiaries and, uh, and county jails. Uh, and in many cases, these local facilities were not much more than a, a shed with maybe a guard. Uh, and escape uh, became, uh, became routine. A lack of money helped to cripple the war effort. Uh, loath to impose direct taxes, the Republicans had relied heavily on import duties to finance the federal government. But restrictions on legal trade with Great Britain, even before 1812, had cut into those revenues. And in 1814, the government uh, failed to make its regular payments on the, uh, the national debt, or I guess we say went over the physical cliff in 1814. <laughs> Illegal trade, on the other hand, continued during the war and contributed to the administration's financial woes. Because Federalist New England generally opposed the war, the Royal Navy did not blockade the New England coast until 1814. And New Englanders bought British goods and they smuggled beef and flour to British armies in Canada. On balance, the illegal trade drained a hard currency out of the United States, 
while um, for much of the war, the federal government struggled to borrow money. Many of the nation's biggest banks were in the Northeast, and they were controlled by Federalists, and they weren't inclined to loan money to a, to a Republican administration. The case of uh, David Parrish illustrates the interconnections between illegal trade, government finances, and the war effort. The British were surprised that the Americans never made a serious effort to close the St. Lawrence River, which was a vital supply line to British forces in Upper Canada. They likely owed a bit of that good fortune to Parrish, who was a large landowner from uh, Ogdensburg, New York. Ogdensburg was in the St. Lawrence Valley along New York's northern border, along the border with Canada. Parrish carried on an extensive illegal trade with Canada, and military operations in his neighborhood would have been bad for business. But Parrish reckoned he could make money by playing both sides, and he loaned the federal government $7.5 million. In exchange, Parrish apparently purchased a tacit understanding from the Madison administration to keep its troops away from Ogdensburg. After one regular army officer, Benjamin Forsythe, led raids from the area into Canada, Parrish successfully pressured the administration to remove U.S. forces from the St. Louis Valley, uh, the St. Lawrence, St. Lawrence Valley. Uh, uh, the administration had to make those compromises, I think, as part of the price of raising money to finance the war. Money motivated Parrish, but Madison's biggest headaches came from Federalists in New England who opposed the war on political and philosophical grounds. New England states regularly withheld their militia from federal service. Connecticut offered recruits to the state militia twice what the U.S. Army paid in order to keep them out of the regular army. Federalists in New England refused to subscribe to, uh, to um, government loans. They bought British war bonds, and they demanded a negotiated end to the war. Federalists in Massachusetts suggested we give up part of Maine, part of it was occupied by the British anyway, we give up Maine in exchange for a peace treaty with the British, uh, and a vocal minority of New England Federalists uh, actually advocated leaving the Union altogether. Well, as president, Madison could not overcome the weaknesses of the early American state. But here I think our plot thickens. Whatever modern historians think of Madison's performance, he won re-election in 1812, and he remained popular until the end of his second term. And he had his critics. Um, hostile graffiti greeted him when he returned to Washington after the British had burned the public buildings. Um, one, um, one posting read, James Madison is a rascal, a coward, and a fool. Uh, another scribbler wrote, George Washington founded this city after a seven years war with England. James Madison lost it in two years. Um, Federalist ministers and Federalist newspaper editors uh, ridiculed Madison uh, viciously. Yet, when Madison left office, most Americans thought he'd been a model president. Even some of his old enemies treated him charitably. John Adams said that Madison added more to the nation's honor and did more to strengthen the United States than Adams himself, Washington, and Jefferson combined. 
And I think it's a sign of the widespread respect that Madison enjoyed that more American towns and counties are named after him than any other American president. So how can we explain Madison's political survival? Is it a case of public opinion rallying around the, the, uh, the president in a time of crisis? Well, at the beginning of the war, maybe, but not after two and a half years of, of uh, seemingly futile sacrifice. I mean, uh, think about Lincoln in early 1864, or Harry Truman after he fired Douglas MacArthur, or Lyndon Johnson after the, after the Tet Offensive. I don't think it was just people rallying around the president in a time of crisis. Now, Madison's survival owes something to pure partisanship. He was a Democratic-Republican, and Democratic-Republicans, at least in the South and West, stood by him to the end. But I think there's more to the story. The burden of Washington did not deal Madison's reputation a fatal blow. The British occupation lasted less than 48 hours, and the federal government quickly resumed its normal, if, uh, if modest, operations. Most people faulted John Armstrong and William Winder, not Madison, for the debacle. And Armstrong and Winder almost invited contempt. Um, trying to defend themselves and, and blaming the victims, they attributed the American defeat at Bladensburg to the cowardice of the soldiers under their command, men in which, as they put it, the love of life predominated over a love of country and of honor and a lot of people didn't appreciate that. Madison, by contrast, managed to spin the attack on Washington to his purposes. The president could minimize the significance of the, uh, of the defeat by pointing to Washington's military insignificance. And ironically, the weaknesses of the federal government that made Washington difficult to defend also made the national capital barely worth defending in the first place. There just wasn't much there. Madison also used the destruction to inflame passions against the British. On September 1st, he issued a proclamation condemning the British for what he called a deliberate disregard of the principles of humanity and the rules of civilized warfare. And within about two weeks, uh, newspapers throughout the country had reprinted Madison's proclamation about 100 times. Cockburn and Ross, uh, the British officers, drew widespread censor for what appeared to be the needless destruction of public buildings. So the British victory at Bladensburg and the raid on Washington really accomplished nothing, but the American victory at, in Baltimore really revived American morale. Well, British and American negotiators in, in Ghent, Belgium, signed the treaty ending the war on Christmas Eve, 1814. The diplomats agreed to a ceasefire that to formally settled nothing, and in a final uh, odd twist to this odd war, uh, the most spectacular American victory of the War of 1812 came in New Orleans a few days later, uh, Andrew Jackson's victory in New Orleans. But since Americans on the East Coast got news of the Battle of New Orleans first and only later heard about the peace treaty, the, the war felt like an American triumph, and Madison benefited from that, uh, from that feeling. Remember, the War of 1812 took place largely along the Canadian border and at sea, um, which meant public opinion was shaped more by what people read or heard about the war as opposed to what they saw. Um, and the war always had something of an abstract quality. These issues of impressment and neutral rights 
didn't really directly affect that many ordinary Americans. And public satisfaction with Madison's performance as president owed a lot to some now almost forgotten abstractions about uh, war and presidential power. For one, Americans of Madison's day worried a great deal about the abuse of executive prerogatives. Madison had said during the debate over the Constitution that he didn't think an American chief executive acting within the powers delegated to him by the Constitution could ever threaten the people's liberties. But Madison said later there was one situation that might arise uh, in which the, the, the president uh, could be tempted to overstep his, his constitutional boundaries, and that situation was war, when people would clamor for decisive presidential action. Madison demonstrated his concerns about the limits of presidential power when he sent his uh, a war message to Congress. Uh, in June of 1812, he laid out the nation's grievances to Congress uh, against Great Britain, but he didn't expressly ask for a declaration of war. Uh, under the Constitution, a declaration of war was a decision for Congress, and Madison intended to defer to uh, the congressional prerogatives. Going back to his days as Secretary of State under Thomas Jefferson, Madison had tried to avoid a war, but it wasn't because he, um, he, he dwelt on the human carnage. When we think of war today, we think of Antietam, Verdun, D-Day. Um, we think of mass casualties and attacks on cities. Uh, we think of the Blitz, Hiroshima, the Holocaust, uh, or the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the Holocaust. But in the 18th century, it was possible to think of war as a contest between small professional armies led by gentlemen, operating within strict rules of engagement and fighting with muskets that made it difficult to hurt anybody beyond a range of about 100 yards or so. In reality, war even then was, was hell, especially for civilians that were caught in a crossfire. There were, for example, reports of mass rapes during British raids on Hampton and Harve de Grace in the spring of 1813. But still, for Madison's generation, wars presented mainly political problems. Military conflicts cost money, which meant higher taxes and an increasing national debt. Uh, that debt typically found its way into the hands of wealthy investors who always threatened to acquire too much political influence. And military spending encouraged inflation and profiteering and the kind of financial speculation that debased and degraded honest labor. And war, with its demands for the kind of quick action that a legislature couldn't provide, always threatened to swell the power of the executive. Masson's popularity endured partly because many of his fellow citizens thought he had managed the political risk of war just fine. Masson's supporters believed fidelity to principle was as important as more tangible accomplishments. The historian Gordon Wood has called the War of 1812 a Republican war that Madison sought to wage in a Republican fashion. His restraint reflected a Republican commitment to individual rights and limited government. He tolerated his Federalist opposition. He authorized no censorship, no internments, no military tribunals. His administration treated enemy aliens and prisoners of war with respect. In the end, Americans appreciated Madison's uh, uh, defense of civil liberties. 
Not only could Madison claim he had protected the people's liberties at home, he could also argue he had vindicated American rights abroad. As the war went on without really accomplishing very much, it became more and more a war for national prestige, a war to show the world the United States would resist when its rights were invaded. John Taylor of Caroline called it a metaphysical war, a war for honor, like that of the Greeks against Troy. Fighting the war honorably became a kind of end in itself. Survival, with the nation's Republican institutions intact, constituted success. It's no coincidence, I think, that it was Mr. Madison's war and not one of our more successful conflicts that produced a national anthem. And that phrase, our flag was still there, has deeper meaning than, than we might think. Americans who lived through the War of 1812 saw 1812 as a war to demonstrate the viability of the American Republic. And that war, they thought, James Madison had won. Thank you. We've got a few minutes for questions. Is there any questions? Oh, let's see. Oh, I've got to wait for the mic. Okay. Yes, could you give us a little bit more information, if you have it, on the uh, way the direct taxes worked? I think there was something about a two-year limit on direct taxes, and they would, uh, uh, when a war came along, they would... Uh, uh, allocate the taxes to each state. Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about the, that? Uh, how think, did Congress, what yeah. was Congress doing at that time yeah, I think about the, that? The, uh, the, the two years was, the, 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 I think the budget was for two years. I don't think there was a two-year requirement for taxes. There, there hadn't been very many uh, direct taxes. There had been a carriage tax that had been adopted in the 1790s. There was a tax on whiskey that provoked the Whiskey Rebellion in the 1790s. But uh, I believe when, uh, when Jefferson came in, they, they, repealed, uh, they repealed most, if, if not all of those. So I don't know of any major direct taxes that were, uh, uh, that were being collected. Uh, there may have been some, but I don't know of any. As I say, there was no income tax and no federal property tax. Okay, thank you. You spoke of the uh, uh, activity along the Canadian border. What yeah. was Madison's thinking about that, and what did he hope to accomplish? That's, that's a good question. I think what Madison hoped to accomplish was to simply occupy as much territory in Canada as possible and then use that as a bargaining chip to try and negotiate a settlement with the British. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were a few people that, uh, that hoped we could conquer and, and annex Canada, but I don't, think, uh, I don't think Madison wanted to do that. I don't think he thought it was feasible. I think he saw Canada as a, as, as a bargaining chip. Uh, it was the one place... It was one place where he thought we could strike at the British. Could you name a military professional of that time that should have or could have been appointed to be more successful in leading Madison's war? Yeah, <clears throat> by um, maybe not in 1812. By 1813 or 1814, there were some younger officers who'd really begun to distinguish themselves. Uh, Winfield Scott was, um, was emerging, uh, probably the best known of the, of, the, of the younger officers when the war began. There was a Jacob Brown, 
uh, Zebulon Pike, although Pike was killed during the raid on, on York. But yeah, there were a number of junior officers um, that, that, that rose through the ranks as the war went on. In 1812, it was pretty slim pickings, but by 1813, 1814, there were some younger men that had begun to distinguish themselves. Yes. And of course, well, Andrew Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Not seeing any, please join me in thanking Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.